0: you brought a Bible. I invite you to open your Bible to chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. For our guests, first of all, welcome. Great to have you. Thank you for being here. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Kingsway. I have a privilege to serve. Um, we have been on a series through the book of Ephesians. And so we are continuing with that. We are in chapter 5 of Ephesians today. I as well want to add to Josh's comments what a wonderful time that we had Friday and Saturday as we gathered as men to look at God's word, look at some very significant truths of his words. I think that we were impacted by God's word in a wonderful way. And so I'm grateful to God for that. And I'm grateful to all the men that came, And even more so, all the men that worked hard to set up everything for us. So, thank you, men. Well, if you will look at Ephesians chapter 5, I'd like to read now the Scripture, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, Has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Pray with me. Father, we bow before your holy word. Father, we recognize the value that you place on your word, that your son is called the word. Father, we ask that you would cause our minds to think your thoughts cause our hearts to be changed by your word come by your spirit now walk among us instruct us from your word that we would be changed into the image of Christ we ask it in his name amen Commentators. If there is an intriguing job out there, it's the job of being a commentator. There are social commentators, political commentators, sports commentators, musical commentators, religious commentators, commentators for animal care, for car care, for baby care, for health care, and just about any care that we care about. You more than likely listen to them, probably know about them, perhaps have your favorites, may agree or disagree with them, may be helped by them, and from time to time may be irritated or angered by them. They're in radio, TV, print, and all sorts of media. Needless to say, they are a fixture of our culture. And by the way, how do you get a job as a commentator? Think about it. If there is a job description, and I imagine someplace there's a job description, uh, I wonder what that job description for a commentator would say. You have to come to work and you have to, comment. You don't have to be right, don't have to be true, don't even have to be relevant, though it helps. You have to be, I guess, somewhat entertaining. You have to come to work and you have to give your opinion. I once had a boss <coughs> who said about his employees, everybody in around here has got their opinions and they're both like armpits. Both opinions stink but give your opinion. Humor aside, I believe it's safe to say that, without argument, commentators have an influence. They have an influence upon our thinking. They have an influence upon our culture. They have an influence upon our society, and possibly more than we would care to admit. They affect our thinking, and if we're not careful, and discerning. They will and do affect the way we see God and the way we interpret His Word. Now, I bring up the concept and the topic of commentators because I observe increasingly, with increasing frequency, commentary about issues dealing with sex human sexuality, pornography, and human relationships. It's simply in the air we breathe. You can't escape it. And if you're honest, you would say that we are bombarded with this. You don't need to go searching for it. Billboards, magazines, TV commercials all speak a commentary on the subject so we must be careful we must be discerning and as verse 6 of our text says we must not be deceived with empty words we have to guard against a deception regarding this now With all due respect, some of the commentators that we hear today can be very misleading and and themselves are misled. It's not to say that they are bad people. It's that their words can be misleading. Conversely, fortunately, there are also good commentators, good commentators as well. Chief among them is one of my favorites, is a man who initially, when he began his career, was known to be completely antagonistic toward the Christian church. He had achieved the highest degrees of religious renown and fame in his circles. He held memberships in the highest religious offices of his denomination and was, without question, a well-respected theologian. He had the religious proverbial world by the tail, but one day, while going down a road towards an Israeli city known as Damascus, all that changed, and his world was turned upside down, for on that road, he met the resurrected living Christ. And his life changed. His entire paradigm of life. His paradigm about the meaning of love and the purpose of life. It changed. Including his name. The Lord changed his name, of course, from Saul to Paul. And he began his work then as a spokesman for God. And in the words of this commentator, humanly speaking, we read God's commentary. Today we read God's commentary on the topic of sexuality. God's words today reveal several issues that are not only controversial in our society, they can also be inflammatory. And sadly, not just in society, but often at times in the church. But let's be clear. If God is commenting on issues, we are wise to listen. And not just wise to listen, but wise to heed. Scripture speaking about Scripture teaches, as we will read today, that the law of the Lord... And his word is perfect. So, let's give priority to the word of God, allowing it to be the compass and standard, and we fall under its teaching. So, let's look at our text. Looking at verses 1 and 2, they call us to be imitators of God. The word to imitate comes from the same word from which we get the word mimic. The verb tense is one which conveys a growth process, which we could rightly translate to be be becoming imitators of God. Be becoming imitators of God. So at the outset, we see before us is a call and a command to grow. To grow but the call and the command to grow is a specific call and command. It's a call and a command to imitate, to imitate. The imitation, as you read before us, is that we are called to walk in love, to walk in love, to constantly order our behavior within the sphere and realm of love, to walk as dear children who live In the love of a benevolent father to mimic his love. But herein lies the challenge. Here's the challenge. It's a major challenge, which is, what does the love of God that we're referring to here look like? What's the love look like that we're called to imitate? I was in a doctor's office the other day, And there was a talk show on, and the lady speaking on the talk show said that she had grown and evolved as a person because now she accepted any form of love in a relationship as all being the same and all being good and all being normal, whether it's heterosexual, homosexual, transsexual, or whatever else. It was all love, and that's all that mattered. The entire audience cheered. I would submit that the biblical definition of love that we're called to imitate from Scripture is something very different. Regarding this challenge, the theologian D.A. Carson says, if people believe in God at all today, the overwhelming majority hold that this God, whoever he, she, or it may be understood, however he may be understood, is a loving being. But that's what makes the task of the Christian witness so daunting. For this widely disseminated belief in the love of God is set with increasing frequency in some matrix other than biblical theology. The result is that when informed Christians talk about the love of God, they mean something very different from what is meant in the surrounding culture. Moreover, he goes on to say, that the love of God in our culture has been purged of anything that the culture finds uncomfortable. We must be careful to note a biblical definition of love. So to further define what is meant by this love and what it looks like and what we're called to imitate, we need to see the qualification. Yes, without question, we are called to walk in love. But that love is as Christ gave himself for us. That love is specific, as Christ gave himself for us. So before we launch into some of the specifics of the other things that Paul has to say, I want to take a little bit closer look at this love of Christ. As we look at the love of Christ that we're called to imitate, I believe it reveals at least three things. Number one, that the love of Christ is a sacrificial love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a costly love. It's a self-sacrificing love. The Bible says that God gave. Gave his son. It's a life where he laid down his life. He denied himself. Yes, he gave many, many generous things and did many many kind things. But it is a giving, other-centered love. It's a love that was anything but comfortable and easy. And it cost him much. So the first thing is that it's a sacrificial love. The second thing that we see in the love of Christ is that it's a focused love. A focused love. It's a love for God. It's a love for others. It's a love for the honor and the glory of God. Luke 9.51 says that regarding the day of his crucifixion, as Jesus was heading to Jerusalem, he set his face. I believe that's a reference from Isaiah 57 where it says, I set my face like a flint. It's a determined love, a focused love. And thirdly, the love of Christ is a unifying love. In keeping with the entire book of Ephesians, it's a love which ultimately brings unity between man and God. The love of Christ and the work of Christ brought a unity between man and God, and therefore between man and man. And the letter of Ephesians is a loud message that the love of Christ brought the people of God to a place where we now, in unity with Him, can walk as He walked. But overall, the love of Christ sets us free. Overall, the effect of the love of Christ is this it makes us free. The love of Christ. The work of Christ sets us free. And it sets us free to live as Christ for the glory of God. That's what the love of Christ does. It frees us from sin and the bondage of sin and it sets us free to live For the glory of God. We are free, thanks be to God, from sin's dominion. Do you know that non-believers can't say that? I once had a friend in school when I was in junior high school. He was a good buddy, but he did not know the Lord. And there were things in his life that were obvious, clear transgressions. And I, in my zeal, that was in some ways out of place in my mouth, would confront him. And I would confront him about his sins. And one day he stopped me as I was confronting him about one of these sins. And he said, Chris... I can't stop. And the Lord stopped me at that point, and I'll never forget it. And the Lord said, He's right. He can't. We don't have power to walk free from sin apart from the work of God. But in the power of Christ, let's be not deceived, there is power to walk free from sin, and to honor God. We're free to love. We're free to be servants of righteousness. So let's keep in mind and remember as we are talking about walking in love that the biblical understanding of love and the love of God that is unifying for his kingdom is not a nebulous, undefined, something that's just open to cultural or social interpretation, it's purposeful, it's specific, and has an end goal in mind. And ultimately, for our study today, I think it brings us to this. That the Christ who demonstrated this love, and the Christ whose love we're called to imitate, now calls and more than that commands his disciples to grow in imitating that love let me say that again the Christ who demonstrated this love the Christ whose love we are called to imitate calls and commands us to walk and grow in imitating his love as the Apostle Paul said earlier, we're called to be becoming imitators of Christ. Be becoming imitators of Christ. We could call one another becoming ones. Becoming ones. Now that includes becoming in all areas of our lives, of course. Imitate Christ in our business life. Imitate Christ in our social life. Imitate Christ in our family life. Imitate Christ in our marriage. And brothers, you know the call. Loving our wives as Christ loved the church. Imitate Christ in parenting. And of course, as is our scripture today, we are called to imitate Christ in the area of sex and sexuality. So here in chapter 5, we read, yet again... We've already, by the way, gone over this in chapter 4, verse 19. But yet again, we read Paul's admonition and command to bring into subjection of Christ everything pertaining to the realm of sexuality and human desire. Now, the secular world of Ephesus, into which this letter came, was widespread with various levels and forms of prostitution, fornication, and sexual activity. Views toward sexuality were defined by cultic practices of various secular traditions, by various religions of that day, were defined by the business of slavery that was prominent in that day, by different social mores, Suffice it to say, there was a marked openness towards free sex in the ancient Greek culture. Sound familiar? One commentator says this, The moral life of the Greco-Roman world had sunk so low that while protests against the prevailing corruption were never entirely wanting, in other words, there was something there of protest, Fornication had long come to be regarded as a matter of moral indifference and was indulged in without shame or scruple, not only by the mass, but by philosophers and men of distinction who in other respects led exemplary lives. Moreover, in this time there was a rampant religious heresy, and you might have heard of it, called Gnosticism which believed that matter was inherently evil and only the spirit was good. So what was done in the material or physical world of the body really didn't matter. Only what was done in the spiritual part of life mattered. But thankfully, and thanks be to God, into this world comes the word of God, comes our Lord and through his coming, bringing his truth. And as he brought his truth, he brought this, that both the physical and the spiritual world do matter. They do matter. And both worlds are areas where we are called to glorify God. Into this very pagan and very promiscuous world God brings the following command look at verse 3 but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints This verse brings out two of the three vices and prohibitions that have already been spoken about in 419 that will be spoken about later on in chapter and verses 11 and 12. But it talks about sexual immorality and impurity of any type. It includes illegitimate sexual intercourse, especially adultery, any involvement with sexual relations with prostitutes, any sexual relations outside of marriage. And by the way, marriage being defined as that between one man and one woman. The term all and every kind of impurity encompasses riotous and excessive living, any form of unrestrained sexual activity, any fornication, The Greek word used here is also the word from which we get, of course, pornography, which indeed is a door to the corruption of the heart. Moreover, Paul goes on in verse 5 to say that along with sexual immorality, and it was interesting how closely this was linked, covetousness, which is a form of idolatry, is also flagged as an unspeakable work of the flesh that must be put off. Unspeakable work of the flesh that must be put off. And though covetousness can have a meaning in different spheres, meaning different things, here where it's listed, and then later on in Colossians where it's listed, it is listed with direct connection to sexual activity. We're called to put off covetousness. The word next to covetousness gives us a clue it's idolatry. Idolatry and covetousness are spoken of here something other than just a desire. It's a consuming lust, a lust for satisfaction within the soul that finds its source of satisfaction outside of God. It's a word that can be translated greed. One author said, an insatiable or unquenchable desire to have more, even the coveting of somebody else's body, for selfish gratification. Ed Welch, in his good book, Addictions, A Banquet in the Grave, says this, Idolatry is an expression of a heart that wants more. It says that God is not enough so it looks for satisfaction elsewhere. Recklessness is often at the heart of idolatry and it's not surprising that runaway desires are consistently part of false worship. Little quiz. Do you recall what the first commandment is? Have no other gods before me. Some of you got that. Do you know what the last commandment is? One of God's big ten? You shall not covet. And it goes on to say there in Exodus twenty seventeen, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Covetousness is an expression of idolatry seeking to fulfill my desires with a false god maybe we don't have them dressed up on totem poles maybe we don't have statues of them but idols are all around us some of you might know the quote by john calvin our hearts are factories of idols factories of idols Speaking with our text, so oftentimes we seek to fulfill our lives with idols. So, folks, we have to be wise. We have to be discerning. We have to see the potential for sexual sin. It is not neutral, it is around us. P.T. O'Brien helpfully says, In contrast to the loose living that prevailed in the Hellenistic world, New Testament teaching required unconditional obedience to the prohibition against fornication. All such sexual immorality, as we've mentioned, is to be considered works of the flesh, deeds of darkness, outside the bonds of God's order, and as such are prohibited and sinful. Moreover, Paul goes on to say that these things ought not even be named among you. Look at verse 4. Paul makes the command that we are not to talk about these things. Talking about them is inappropriate. They are out of place. He says in verse 4, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Folks, I understand this is a hard word, but we must hear God's word. Talk of obscenities, crude joking about sexual things, vulgarity, speaking in a crude manner of that which God calls good and that which God calls holy, namely sex, ought not be among his children. God created a sexual relationship for the marriage. Something to be good. Something to be holy. Something to be pleasing. Something that was a, an expression of a very intimate union between two people. And it had a purpose and has a purpose. It's declare the holiness Of his union with his people, namely between Christ and his bride, which is the church. So, folks, speaking obscenities, crude joking, demonstrates both the maligning of the gift, which is a holy gift, but it also speaks of a covetousness and a self centeredness, which is the direct opposite of the purpose of the gift. Instead, instead of this. once again, there's a list of put-on and put-offs. We're talking about the put-offs. Just as important as the put-offs is the put-on. Just as important as the put-offs is the put-on. Ephesians 5, 4 at the end says, Instead, let there be thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving. There ought to be thanksgiving. In place of improper speech, there ought to be thanksgiving. I did some research last night and it said there were, thanksgiving is listed 37 times in the scripture. The phrase, give thanks to God, is listed 57 times in scripture. The word, thanks, is listed 98 times in scripture. I think God wants to get our attention. The act of giving thanks is an expectation of God's people. It's an expectation of God's people. I believe one of the reasons why we're commanded to practice thanksgiving and give thanksgiving, in part, is because it renders focus first and foremost to God, to the glory of God cultivates in our heart a gratefulness to God for the work of God. We had an opportunity over the last couple days as men to listen to words about justification. Huge doctrine that when you get to the end of it, you're just in awe of the work of God. The only proper response to that as we think of that is thanksgiving. But thanksgiving is a deliberate act of the will. It's not just a state of mind, though it can involve a state of mind. There is a place in Scripture where it says, give thanks. I believe the most powerful spiritual position we could ever be in is in a place of giving thanks. Giving thanks. And it's interesting, as I was looking at the Apostle Paul, the number of times where in his exhortations, he says, rather, the giving of thanks. The giving of thanks. The giving of thanks. For what? For who I am in Christ. From where I've been rescued. From what I've been rescued. For what my future is. That's just the beginning. We have so much to be thankful for. So an interesting question to ask ourselves is this. If you were to record your words and meditations, would we be marked by giving thanks? If your sense of gratitude is cold or waning, I invite you again to take some time to walk again that well-worn path to the cross, to take time to think upon the work of the Savior for us, to contemplate it, to think on it, and to be freshly impacted with thanksgiving. So walking in love, therefore, Building the unity of Christ requires that we implement putting off, that requires we put on, that we put off sexual immorality, lust, obscene talk, that we put on thanksgiving as appropriate to honoring God. These things are commanded of us by God. And a person who is marked as one who has been regenerated one in whom the Spirit of God lives, will be marked with these things, the putting off and the putting on, not perfectly, but growingly so. But conversely, and sadly, a person who does not in some form seek to walk in a manner of life putting off of sexual immorality and sin, putting on thanksgiving to God, is, according to Scripture, suspect as really being a child of God. One of the most sobering verses in this section for me is verse 5. For you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, what is in view here is a pattern of continuous practice. It's a living to fulfill sexual sin and a pleasure within a sinful lust and an insatiable gain for more. Though this is acceptable to many in our culture and society, and it is, quite honestly, in many places, and in many places of the world. But according to the New Testament, the word of God, someone who lives like that brings a sober assessment that they do not possess a worship of God in their hearts And sadly, nor are they an inheritor of the kingdom of God. Please understand, I'm not speaking of the sins that we commit day to day that grieve us, from which we regularly repent. We are all familiar with that. That's a completely different scenario. It's not what I'm talking about. But Paul continues emphatically that if one continues to practice this, does not repent of the idolatry of sexual sin, they cannot inherit the kingdom of God And as a pastor, one of the most grievous things that a pastor has to do is to confront somebody. And I have no authority from Scripture at all to assure anyone who is walking in a way as described, I have no authority to assure them that they have a place in the kingdom of God. The challenge is to warn them. The challenge is to rebuke them. The challenge, heartbreakingly so, is to tell them the sober assessment from Scripture. Paul says it is impossible that one who has been made alive in Christ, who's been called by Christ, that now possesses eternal life, that has an inheritance in Christ, that loves and worships God, that knows the joy of forgiveness, it's impossible that they are going to continue in that type of lifestyle. Friends, we're called to walk in freedom. We're called to walk in freedom from these vices and sins. They seek to ensnare They seek to tempt us. They're prominent all around us. Turn on your cell phone. Turn on your computer. Turn on your computer. Drive down the road. Turn on the radio. It's there. We're bombarded by it. Can't get away from it. It's going to come at us. We are called to wrestle with this. We're called to fight. It's a lifelong process, but we're called to imitate Christ in this. We're called to grow in this. We're in a process of growing. And I like what Martin Luther has to say about our growth in imitating Christ. Martin Luther says, This life, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth and righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We're not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it's going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but it is being purified. Folks, we're in a process. We're in a battle. If you're not in the battle, get in the battle. If you're not in the battle, you don't know you're in the battle. It's there. So, for lack of a better battle plan, I offer the following one way to be involved in this war, for what it's worth, I offer the following an acronym, if that's the right word. One way to battle is to attack. To attack. So, for attack, I have A, admit. Admit your inability to stand in your own strength against sexual temptation. We must trust and look to the Lord, must see our need for God. An author who I read early on in my life, who I deeply, deeply respected, who deeply was respected in the world of this, said there is one area where I will never fall. And unfortunately, tragically, that was his case. Folks, we cannot stand in our own strength. We can stand. We can stand. We are called to fight. But we must admit our inability to stand apart from God. We need his help. T, we need to trust. Trust that God by his spirit is at work within you. Recognize that as a child, you have been liberated from the power of sin. You have been united to Christ. You have been filled with his spirit. Trust that God is at work. Trust that he will help. Thirdly, thank. Thank God for the life and inheritance that you have in Christ. Thank God for the work that he's done. Thank him in song. Thank him in prayer. Make Thanksgiving a focus of your day. Tell yourself about it. Give thanks to God. Fourthly, accountability. Accountability. Get prayer Get prayer. Get a Nathan. Get somebody who will ask you questions. Get counsel to help you walk free and stay free. Get with a brother or sister who can pray for you, who can encourage you. And not just confront you about what you're doing wrong. One of the wonderful things about being together as men was you heard brothers talk to other brothers about what they're doing right and to be encouraged in what they're doing is they're putting on the armor of God. Do you have a friend? Do you have somebody who you can talk to in terms of accountability? Fifthly, be honest and confess. Confess sin and repent from sin. None of us walks in perfection. None of us does this side of heaven. Confess sin. Repent. They are sweet gifts of God. Confession is a sweet gift of God. Confession breaks, helps to break the back of sin. It is humbling when you go to someone and say, I have sinned this way. No, I didn't just say that. I lied to you. No, I didn't just lie to you. I lied to you because I wanted myself to look better. I didn't want you to look better. I lied to you because I was jealous or what have you. That's confession. Before God, we have no fear of his rejection because we are his. Before us is our forgiveness. Lastly, Kill. Kill. What the saints of old would call mortify. Put to death. Put to death as necessary. Putting to death, don't know what comes to mind, but if you take an axe and put it across the head of an animal, they're separated. You hold the axe. In addition to that, flee. As it relates to sexual temptation. The Bible is clear to flee. I heard one teacher say that brothers if you can look at a scantily clad woman who is acting seductively and not be tempted it's not because you're spiritual it's because you're dead. <laughs> Ladies if you can regularly watch programs or read books that speak of the ultimate man the ultimate hero, the ultimate lover, and not fantasize, it's not that you're mature. It's that you're fooling yourself and that you're deceived. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better to go into heaven maimed than to not go into heaven. So I had a friend say, Chris, does it mean that then I should pluck out my eye? Should I cut off my hand? And I said, no. You can't perform a spiritual process with a physical act. Jesus is talking about the spiritual there. But he is making a point. We must take action. Called to imitate Christ. So if what you're doing with a relationship or with the computer or with a magazine causes you to fall into sexual sin, cut it off. Cut it off. As relates to temptation towards sexual sin, we have good advice run. Don't stop to negotiate. Don't stop to deliberate. Internet pornography, run. A growing inappropriate emotional detachment at the water cooler, run. If driving down the road, walking down that aisle, making that text, social interaction or conversation, Flipping to that channel causes you to sin, run, flee. We're bombarded today from all angles. We're tempted to give in to our hearts, to deceptive sources of satisfaction. We are tempted, called out to come and give yourself to this, it will make you feel better. It will ease the pain. We are tempted and sadly, we give in. Sadly, we seek satisfaction in that outside of Christ. Regretfully, we look to those things. And I don't know about you, but when I do, there comes guilt, shame, embarrassment and discouragement and we're tempted at that moment to run from God it's at that moment we need to recall the gospel we need to recall that we have been welcomed open arms by one who died for that very sin not to run from God, but to turn and run to him. That's the call of the gospel. Nothing we've done is outside his ability to forgive. Dear brothers and sisters, in closing, if you are hearing the word of God today, if you're desirous to please God, please know of all that I've said, please hear this. God is poised and ready as a loving Father to offer grace, to offer forgiveness, to offer restoration, to offer power to walk in imitation of Him. That's the God we serve. That's the God who is here. If you're struggling with an area of temptation or know you've walked in a manner contrary to the love of Christ, if you have sinned, if you found yourself in a practice of habitual sin from which you want freedom and want to experience God's redeeming power, then know this, his help is here his help comes freely but it comes to those who will come to him approach his throne in faith and bow before him as Lord and trust him for help <coughs> he is a grace-giving forgiving father there's grace to begin again. But ultimately, God calls us without compromise to value, to love, to honor him above all things and to grow in imitating a walk of love towards God. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that we all are but debtors to your mercy, in need of your grace, in need of your help. And so, Father, in response to your word, we offer ourselves firstly with thanksgiving for your abundant love for us. Lord, we give thanks to you, That you called us when we were not worthy. You called us when we were not deserving. You took our sin upon you and forgave us that sin. And so, Father, we offer afresh ourselves to you. Lord, that you would cause us to walk in a manner that's imitating of Christ. That through our lives, through our sexual lives, you would be glorified to the honor of God. Amen.